Amen. Well, it's so good to see all of you here on this first Sunday of spring. Spring is here. Kind of feels like spring, looks like spring out there. And it's so good to see all of you here today. Thank you for being such a wonderful congregation and for your faithfulness and your attendance during this uh, interim period, this time of transition for the church. Uh, you all are doing very well as members of Starnes Cove Baptist, of, of showing up, of being prayed up, of serving, of giving, of doing what God would have you to do. I'm just uh, mighty proud of you and all God is doing in your lives. It's uh, good to see this attendance, and I could tell that in the parking lot. When, when we got here about 1030, uh, there were already some folks doing creative parking out there. And my vehicle's one of them that's uh, parked rather creatively this morning. But uh, nonetheless, we hope you found a parking place, and, uh, a place to sit, and we're glad you're here this morning. And one of the things that I want to do during uh, my time here as an interim pastor is to go back and deal from time to time with some of the very basics uh, of our faith. That's always a good thing to do. That's a healthy thing for us to do as Christians. Uh, one of the greatest football coaches in all history is Vince Lombardi. And uh, he has long since uh, been gone from the Green Bay Packers, but he achieved legendary success there with, with them. And when Vince Lombardi first went to Green Bay, he stood in front of those football players that had played football from the time they were children to the time, you know, all through high school and college, and, and now they were professional players, and, and they knew all the ins and outs. They knew all the technical things. They, they knew all the fancy plays of how to play the game of football. But Vince Lombardi stood before the Green Bay Packers with a football in his hand, and he said to them, gentlemen, this is a football. And he started right there from, from the basics. And I think sometimes as God's people, it's good for us to just kind of come together around the Word of God and, and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. It's God's Word. And, and this is the basis and the bedrock for why we believe the things that we do and why we do the things that we do. It all comes from the Word of God. And so this morning... I want to bring a message that I've entitled, How You Can Be Certain the Bible is God's Word. And in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, I want to read one verse and then we're going to go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and read a couple of more verses there. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's found right in the middle of the Bible. And Psalm 119 is a psalm that is about the Bible itself. It's about the Word of God. And so in Psalm 119, the psalmist says in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And then I want us to go now to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, 
which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. May God bless the reading of his word. How can you be certain that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. How do you know that it's different from any other book? And how do you know that it is the correct basis for what we believe? Well, there are five sources of religious authority that uh, Christians have commonly looked to. Uh, first of all, there's divine revelation. That's the supreme source of religious authority. That's the Bible itself. It's what God has said to us in the pages of His Holy Word. And Christians have always looked to the Bible, the Word of God, as the chief source of religious authority. So, when we're determining our, word, our worldview... When we're thinking about life and we're thinking about moral and social and economic issues, when we're thinking about how we raise our children, when we're thinking about how we live our lives daily, how we relate to our neighbors, how we deal with all these things that are so up in front of us in this modern 21st century, it is divine revelation, the Bible itself, that is our chief source of authority. Now there are some other sources that sometimes people look to as sources of authority, but we've got to be careful as Christians never to elevate any of these sources above the Word of God because when we do so, we cease to be Christian in doing this very thing. A lot of people look to the scientific method as a source of authority. Others look to human reason. Does it sound reasonable? Is it the reasonable thing to do? Others look to culture. And of course we see culture. And uh, it's changing all the time around us, isn't it? And then others look to historical or ecclesiastical tradition as a way of uh, claiming religious authority on something. And we as Baptists even have those uh, statements. Our uh, Baptist uh, message, the, the 2000 Baptist faith and message, and before that the 1963 Baptist faith and message. We have statements of what we believe, but we believe that's directly tied to and comes from the Bible. So, that being said, the chief source of our authority for what we believe and how we behave and why we do the things that we do. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. So can you trust the Bible? Can you believe the Bible to be what it claims to be, the very Word of God? And so I want to share with you this morning in the message seven reasons for why that you can trust the Bible. Number one, you can believe the Bible because of the testimony of Scripture itself. The testimony of the Bible itself. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the Bible says, and, and Paul is saying this to Timothy, he says, but you must continue 
in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Notice that, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the testimony of the Bible itself, the Bible claims to be the inspired Word of God. And the word inspired literally literally means God breathed. Every thought, every idea, every word that is contained there is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is two different things to say that the Bible contains the Word of God and to say that the Bible is the Word of God. If you merely say the Bible contains the Word of God, then that may mean that there are some things in here that are not the Word of God. And yet the Scripture itself makes the testimony that it's all inspired of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, I believe all of it. I believe it from Genesis all the way through maps. I believe that. On the inside of my Bible, right there it says genuine leather. I even believe that. You know, I just, I'd rather be accused of believing too much about the Bible than believing too little about the Bible, wouldn't you? I've seen a lot of people that get their lives in trouble by by believing too little, but I've never seen anyone get in trouble by, by believing too much. If you say that the Scripture is only inspired in spots, then you have to have somebody to tell you which spots are inspired and which spots are not. And just as soon as you do that, then all of a sudden human reason becomes elevated above the Word of God itself as a source of authority. And you remember that from the first uh, slide that uh, we put up on the screen. And so the testimony of the Bible itself, it is the inspired Word of God. Lamentations 3.16 is just as inspired of God as John 3.16. However, when it comes to preaching about salvation, John 3.16 is a much clearer statement about how people accept Christ and the love of God that's shown to us in Christ than Lamentations 3.16 would be. But nonetheless, both are inspired of Almighty God. And so there's the testimony of the Bible itself. That's one reason you can believe that this Bible is the Word of God. But then secondly, uh, there's its scientific accuracy. Its scientific accuracy. Now, you remembered I mentioned that some people look to the scientific method as a, uh, as a source of authority. And uh, some of those people tend to look at the Bible and say, well, there are scientific errors in the Bible. But before you say that, you'd better make sure you understand two things. You'd better make sure you understand science, and you'd better make sure you understand the Bible. Most of the people who claim that there are scientific errors in the Bible are lacking in their knowledge of both the Bible and of science. Uh, you, you know, you'd better be thankful 
that the Bible doesn't always agree with science. And I want to tell you why. Science is constantly changing. Science is, is, its view is, is, is changing around us. Things that were considered scientific facts just a few years ago are not considered scientific facts even today. Nearly 150 years ago, the French Academy of Science published a booklet that contained what they called 150 scientific facts that proved the Bible to be an error. So science has changed so much since that time that you would not find one reputable scientist today who believes even one of those so-called facts today. Now the truth is, we have been waiting on science to catch up with the Bible, not the other way around. And let me give you some examples of that. Uh, we take for granted that the earth is suspended in space. We know that. We understand that uh, in the world that we live in today. But that's not always been known. The ancient Greeks, who were known for their intellect, said that Athens held it up on his shoulders. Okay, well, I bet he got tired doing that. But that's how they uh, said that the earth uh, was held in place. Uh, the Egyptians said that the earth was supported by five pillars or columns. The Hindus believed that the earth was supported on the back of several huge elephants. And yet the Word of God in Job chapter 26 and verse number 7, the Word of God all along has said that He hangs the earth on nothing. And that's exactly how that it is. As the Bible says, we've waited on science to catch up with the Bible to confirm that. And then also we take for granted that the earth is round. We see pictures of it from outer space. It's round. But people haven't always thought that, have they? Even people who claim to be scientific people did not always believe the earth to be round. Back in the days of Christopher Columbus, the most intellectual people in the world thought the earth was flat. And that if you would sail far enough onto the edge of the sea that you would eventually just fall off over the edge out there somewhere. But the Bible says this about the earth. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, it says, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. It says that in the Bible, that the earth is a circle. And the word circle in Hebrew is the exact word that means globe. So the Bible has said all along that the earth is indeed round. These are just a few of the examples that I can talk about that deal with the scientific accuracy of the Bible. But then, number three, another reason that we can believe the Bible to be the Word of God is its historical it's historical reliability. Now again, the Bible is, is, is a book about God. It's, it's not really a book about science. It's not really a book about history. Although it contains some science, it contains certainly some history. 
But when the Bible does speak about history, it does so accurately. It does so reliably. Uh, Let me give you an example of that one very quickly. In Daniel chapter 5, we're told about a Babylonian king by the name of Belshazzar. He was the last king in Babylon before it was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Now, for years, archaeological discoveries could never find anything about this king named Belshazzar. But they did find something about a king that appeared to be the last king in Babylon, and his name was Nabonidus. And so the critics of the Bible were having a field day. They said the scripture in Daniel 5 says that that Belshazzar was the king of Babylon, and yet we have this archaeological evidence that says that Nabonidus was the king, uh, the Babylonian king. Well, not too many years after that, as the archaeologists continued to dig and continued to do their, uh, make their discoveries, they found other ancient Babylonian documents in which Belshazzar was mentioned as the king. And the documents further revealed that Nabonidus was actually the father and Belshazzar was the son. And they were co-regents in the kingdom. And so you had Nabonidus who was ruling over the entire Babylonian empire. And then you had his son Belshazzar who was ruling over the city of Babylon itself. They were co-regents. Now isn't it interesting then that in Daniel chapter 5 when God did the handwriting upon the wall... And Belshazzar asked for someone to interpret it. He made this offer. He said, if anyone can interpret this writing on the wall, he will be made the third highest ruler in Babylon. Why did he say that? Because his dad, Nabonius, was the first. Belshazzar was the second. And so whoever interpreted the writing would be the third. And so we were just waiting all along on archaeology really to just catch up with where the Bible had been. And so the historical reliability of Scripture, you can believe it for that reason. Here's another reason you can believe the Bible. The fourth reason, it's wonderful unity. It's wonderful unity. You see, the Bible is actually more than just one book. It's a library of some 66 different books, isn't it? And these books were written by 40 different men over a period of about 1,600 years. The Holy Spirit inspired various types of people from different backgrounds to write Scripture. There were kings like David and Solomon. There were statesmen like Daniel and Nehemiah. Amos was a herdsman. Matthew was a tax collector. Peter and John were fishermen. Luke was a physician. God inspired a variety of people 
to write the Bible, to write His words. And yet those messages through thousands of years fit together. In the Old Testament, they are looking for the Christ who is to come. In the New Testament, we're looking back to Calvary and what Jesus did there. And there's the wonderful unity of the Bible that brings it all together that attests to the fact that it is indeed the Word of God. Then there's a fifth reason for believing the Bible. And the fifth reason is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Let's take just one little segment of prophecy to look at for a moment. There are over 300 specific prophecies about Jesus that are in the Old Testament. All of them regarding His first coming have been fulfilled right down to the most minute details. Statisticians tell us that the odds of one man fulfilling all of those prophecies is about one in an octillion. Now that's a bigger number than I typically use. And probably bigger than you typically use too, isn't it? Uh, If you want to get an idea of what an octillion is and what one and an octillion would be, imagine this. Imagine the land mass of the state of Texas. And it's a huge state, isn't it? Imagine the land mass of Texas covered with silver dollars six inches deep. Okay? Silver dollars six inches deep all over the state of Texas. One of those silver dollars has an X that has been marked on it. You are blindfolded and set down somewhere in the middle of Texas and your odds of walking around and picking up that one silver dollar that had an X on it is one in an octillion. That is the odds of one person fulfilling all of those specific prophecies related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus fulfilled them all. And that in itself, the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus, is enough to cause us to believe the Bible to to be the Word of Almighty God. Here's another reason for believing the Bible. The duration of the Bible. The duration of the Bible. The scripture that I read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 25 says that the word of the Lord endures forever. It endures forever. History is filled with examples of people who have tried to destroy and eradicate the word of God. One of them was the Roman emperor Diocletian. He demanded that all the copies of Scripture be gathered up and burned. And when he burned what he thought was the last copy of the Word of God, he erected a monument and chiseled into the stone, the name of Christian is extinguished. Diocletian thought he did away with the Word of God. But I've been looking around here this morning and I've seen a whole bunch of Bibles in this place. I don't believe he got them all, do you? 
He could not do away with the word of God. He couldn't destroy it. Voltaire, the French atheist, in the midst of the Enlightenment, predicted that within 25 years the Bible would be forgotten and that Christianity would be a thing of the past. Forty years later, after Voltaire's death in 1778, Bibles and other Christian literature were being printed in the house that had once been Voltaire's very own house. God must have a sense of humor. He must have a sense of humor for something like that to happen. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, think about it. Diocletian is gone. Voltaire is gone. But the Word of God is still here. The inspired Word of God, it, is, it endures forever, the Scripture says. But then there's a seventh reason that I believe is the most powerful reason of all for believing that the Bible is the Word of God, and here it is, its power to change lives. Its power to change lives. There in, first, in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul talked with Timothy about the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. When you read the Bible... There's something amazing that happens. There are books that you read, but there's only one book that when you read it, it reads you. And that's the Bible. That's the Word of Almighty God. The Bible has the power to convict us of sin and to point us to Christ and to change our lives. One Sunday morning in a blinding snowstorm, there was a young boy, teenage boy, that was trying to get to his church, but he couldn't get there because of all the snow. And so he stopped off at a church that was closer by his house, and he went inside that church building in the middle of that snowstorm, and hardly anybody was there that day. In fact, the weather was so bad, the pastor was not able to show up. And so there was a layman that decided, well, there are people here. Uh, we need to at least read some Scripture today. And so he got up, opened his Bible, and read a verse of Scripture. And the Scripture said, Look unto me and be healed all the ends of the earth. And that young boy who was there that day received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior that morning. And he grew up to become one of the greatest Baptist preachers the world has ever known. And you'll recognize the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That's how he was converted. A layperson just stood in the pulpit in front of a few people on a snowy Sunday morning, read a passage of Scripture, and Charles Spurgeon got saved. Many of us, it's our testimony, isn't it? That someone shared with us the Word of God, either on a personal basis, or maybe in a Sunday school class, maybe in a youth group, maybe in a children's ministry, maybe a pastor in the pulpit. But the Word of God was preached, we were convicted of our sins, and we came to know Jesus Christ. There's power in the Word of God. Do we have any 
men here in the church at Starnes Cove who are involved with the Gideon ministry? Are, are any, any of the men here Gideons? You know, you're familiar with the Gideon ministry, aren't you? The, the men that go around and, and they uh, place Bibles in different places. One of the most powerful testimonies I ever heard was from a man who got saved from reading one of those Gideon Bibles that was in a motel room. And this man checked in to the motel desiring to commit suicide. He was going to take his own life. And so what he did, he, he took along some drugs, some marijuana, and in an effort to get up enough courage to eventually shoot himself with a pistol and take his life, he decided that he was going to smoke enough marijuana that it would take the edge off and calm him down a little bit so that he could actually follow through with taking his life. And so he took that Gideon Bible and began to tear pages out of the Bible and roll them up and make marijuana cigarettes out of them and, and he smoked his way through several chapters of the Word of God, he said. But he got to John chapter 3 and he happened to glance down and actually read some of the pages of the Word of God. And he read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that man, instead of taking his life, He gave his life to Jesus Christ and he received Jesus as his Lord and Savior and he's not only a Christian, but he is a pastor today near Boone, North Carolina. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the power of the Word of God to change lives. You know, sometimes we hear testimonies among Christians and testimonies are a good thing. But I want to tell you a testimony that you'll never hear. You'll never hear someone say, I was an alcoholic, and one day I picked up a chemistry book, and I read about the chemical composition of alcohol, and it sobered me up, and I've never taken a drink since. You'll never hear that testimony. Have you ever heard anybody give a testimony and say, I used to be a thief and a crook. But one day I picked up a mathematics book and I read about how 2 plus 2 equals 4 and ever since that day it just straightened me out and I have not stolen anything and I haven't told a lie since then. It just straightened me out, that math book. No, you'll you'll never hear that testimony. Have you ever heard anyone say, I used to be an adulterer But one day, I picked up a geometry book and I read about a hypotenuse triangle and I've been poor ever since. (laughs) We'll never hear those testimonies because those books cannot change lives in that kind of way. But every one of us today who is a Christian, we've got a testimony about how God used the Bible and the message of the Bible to show us our need of Christ and to bring us to faith in the Savior. And that same Bible that God has used to change my life and the lives of thousands and millions of other people, if you don't know Jesus Christ, 
It's the message of the Bible that God wants to use to bring you to Him today. I close with this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord says that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Him in repentance. That's what God wants. If you don't know Christ, He wants you to be saved. Romans Chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then it goes on in verse 13 and it says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's His Word. And if He's speaking to you today, And the Holy Spirit is taking this Word of God and implanting it in your heart and and you know you need to receive Christ. Oh, how I pray that you'll come and receive Jesus right here today and that you'll let God change your life. There are testimonies of, of scores of people all around you, all over this building today, who can tell how God changed their lives and He used the message of the Bible to be able to communicate to them that they needed to be saved. Are you hearing God's voice today as He speaks through His Word? I invite you to come to Him. Let's bow together in prayer and we're going to prepare for the song of invitation. Pastor William is going to be here at the front today to help lead and guide in this time of invitation to pray with anyone who might like to come forward and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Brother Billy is going to come and have the invitation song ready. And while we're getting ready to sing, let me just ask you to stand right now. Let's all stand together. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And then as we sing, we invite you to come and receive Jesus as your Savior today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the precious Word of Almighty God. We thank You for its power. And Father, we pray that this morning that You will reach out to where people are and for those who need Christ, may You draw them unto You for their soul's salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we sing the invitation song this morning, we invite you to come as we sing.